Good morning and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. Uh, what a wonderful morning it is mm. because it is Women's History Month. When we're recording this in the afternoon. Yeah, well... Well, oh, it's Women's History Month. Today is yeah. International Women's Day. It is. That we're recording this on. And that's why it's a special International Women's Day episode of Excellent. the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. My name's Eleanor and I'm in the studio with my co-collaborator... Is that a thing? Co- co-collaborator? From, yeah. With my collaborator, I yeah, think. Yeah, I guess that's, yeah. A, that's a kind of unnecessary addition Sa- of co. Sidekick? Yeah. But yep. you can't just have a laborator. Hmm... I could be an elaborator. I think that's what you will be. What's your name? Oh, my name's Mitchell. Hello. Uh, welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Uh, we are doing a special International Women's Day edition of the show because we uh, quite recently did a, a Power Lady Scientist episode in light of the women's marches that were taking place, I think, in, in January. Yep. And it was really fun. And it was really fun. Mm. And I think a lot of people really enjoyed it. Uh, I know that my mum did. I know that I did when I re-listened to it again. Yeah. Why not Why not <laughs> listen to our podcasts? Go to, go yeah. to uh, Fuzzy Logic at Podbean. Uh, that's where we upload our podcasts. If you go to iTunes, you can find us. And what yeah. we're going to be doing today is doing our one-for-one exchange of anecdotes and stories about our... Uh, top women scientists. Power lady scientists. Power lady scientists. Uh, and Mitchell, do you want to go first with a power lady scientist? Yeah, I'll go first with a power lady scientist. Excellent. Now, so uh, so the first two ladies that I wanted to talk about today were both Marys. The first one that I wanted to talk about was Mary Anning. Okay. Who's uh, the first female paleontologist as far... Well, one of the first female paleontologists. She's often described as the princess of paleontology. She, cool. She's most famously discovered Dimorphodon and Ichthyosaurus and Plesiosaurus. Oh, Ichthyosaurus is yeah. the fish one. It's the dolphin-looking one. Yeah, its name is literally fish lizard. Awesome. It's like a dolphin-shaped marine reptile. That's really cool. But I'm not going to talk about her. Okay. Uh, but what I wanted to do was talk about three Marys. Three? Because I had two Marys, and I dropped one of them, but I have... Two other Marys. It's so like I've a got, fantasy team at this stage. It's, it's a fantasy team of it's all Mary scientists, but it kind of feel it kind of feels a little bit like cheating because she's one of the women from Hidden Figures. Oh no, that's not cheating. That's really good. Yeah. Okay. I'm really excited because I still haven't seen it. Neither have I. Okay, we need to go see it. Yeah, we do. Um, but yeah, one of the one of the women in Hidden Figures is Mary Jackson. Um, Mary Jackson was born in 1921 in Hampton, in Virginia. Mm-hmm. She, after earning top marks in high school, she went on to the Hampton Institute, a private university, where she earned a bachelor's degree in mathematics and physical sciences. Cool. In 1951, she joined the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA. Well, oh, it's yeah. like NASA, but it's not like quite NASA, there. but it's not quite there yet. It's NASA. It went on to become NASA. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that they'd had a previous iteration yeah. of NASA. Um, so they changed it to. National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Yeah. I guess after they got to space. Yeah, once space when became happened. a thing. Yeah. Um, and she was one of the human computers. So back before they had real good fancy computers, they just used people. Yeah. People are pretty good computers. Yeah, right? Imagine the thing that you imagine mathematicians who are where they've just got a big chalkboard and they're going nuts. Yeah. Doing all kinds of funny symbols on the chalkboard. Yeah. That's basically what these people did for a job. Wow. They'd do all the calculations for all the engineers. Yeah. And, and there was a lot... There's There's a history of having lots of women being human computers yeah one of my future uh picks today is is also a human computer but that, in a different a slightly different field no similar field that's pretty cool yeah. yeah um do you know why so many women were human computers tell me why because this was like hmm i've got a feeling like they picked a lot of women for to be human computers because they didn't have to pay women as much yeah that's yep. what i found in my research well the reason that i found was 
probably well there's a different reason why they didn't pay them as much mm. um but the main reason why there were so many women human computers was because they needed lots of people to do ballistics trajectory and other engineering calculations during the second world war oh and all the men had gone off to shoot guns at other men yes yeah so women stayed so behind and were doing the maths yeah that's it yeah. yeah, I mean, those sorts of periods of time were were quite big for women in terms of the industries that That's suddenly it. opened up yep. because there was no other option. That's it. But yeah, they, they also like didn't consider human computers to be as professional, so they didn't pay them as much. Yeah, but yeah. That might have been because there were more women human computers. So yeah. like a chicken and the egg problem there, I think, somewhere. Yeah. In 1953, after working as a human computer for two years, she got accepted. She accepted an offer to work for an engineer, Camarez Zarnecki, I cool. think. Yeah. In the supersonic pressure tunnel. So just a big fancy wind tunnel. Oh. And by awesome. wind I mean it's like it's like four foot wide or something. Okay. It's a little fancy wind tunnel. Yeah. Anyway. For for testing the aerodynamics of, of things. Flying things. Flying things, okay. Yeah, they're they're still aeronautics, they're not at space yet. Yeah. Um Uh yeah. So and Zarnecki encouraged Jackson to undergo training so that she could be promoted to an engineer, because engineers made the money. Yeah. Um but to do that, she needed to take graduate level courses in maths and physics to qualify for the job. Mm-hmm. They were, and they were only offered in a night program at University of Virginia, which held, which held, held at the All White Hampton High School. Right. And she had to petition the city of Hampton to allow her to attend the classes. But she got there. Good. Yeah, and she completed. Her, and after completing her courses, she was promoted, be promoted to aerospace engineer. Excellent. And became NASA's first black female engineer. That's Yeah, that's some intersectionality there. Mm. Having to not only fight to get the qualifications because she was an underpaid woman, human computer, but then to have to petition to go to what was otherwise a segregated learning institution to get those qualifications. Yep. Like she had to work hard. That is a glass ceiling. Yeah, that, that had to be hammered against Whole, in a big way. Like uh, uh, layers of glass ceilings. Yes. Yeah, and that's the complexity of, of, I guess, these overlapping minorities. So one of my scientists later on um, was also slightly disabled. So these are these yep. are sort of yep. these hurdles stack up, and they and it do. makes the accomplishments of these people all the more sort of astounding. Uh, Jackson served more than thirty years as a Girl Scout leader as well. Nice. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Like, she was an active member of the community as well. Yeah. Um, and Need to be, have visible leadership yeah. roles as well. She gained a massive reputation for being a teacher. Yep. And also helped kids build wind tunnels for their own experiments. That's so cool. So much fun. Imagine. Like, ah, you're getting the first black female engineer to teach you, a Girl Scout, how to build wind tunnels. Girl Scouts Imagine being stuff. Imagine being that kid, though. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Um... Yeah, and after 34 years at NASA, Jackson had earned the most senior engineering title available. Wow. Uh, she realized that she could not earn further promotions without becoming a supervisor. Uh-huh. She accepted a demotion to become a manager of both the Federal Women's Program in the NASA Office of Equal Opportunity Pro- in in the NASA Office of Equal Opportunity Programs yeah. and the Affirmative Action Program. Fantastic. And in this role, she worked to influence both the hiring and the promotion of women in NASA's science, engineering, and mathematical careers. That's so cool. She's pretty cool. So she took a demotion to be able to, to help them. other women get into NASA. That's, I mean, that's all about, um, oh, there's some saying about if you make it to the top, you have to, you know, reach down and help other people up too. That's it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mitchell's first Mary <laughs> Mitchell's of three. first Mary. Mary Jackson. All right. 
Yeah. Uh, you've been listening to the first uh, Power Lady Scientist uh, in our special International Women's Day edition of Fuzzy Logic. Uh, we're going to go to a song now. This is Lady Liberty by Dressy Bessie. That was Lady Liberty by Dressy Bessie. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX, where today Mitchell and myself, Eleanor, uh, we're in the studio. Mitchell just waved. Hello! <laughs> in an audio medium. Yeah, you um, can see that real good. Uh, we are talking about power lady scientists because our last episode, uh, where we, we did a special episode for the women's marches, we really enjoyed doing and people enjoyed listening to, so we're, we're doing a special International Women's Day edition for we're, that purpose too. We're recording it on International Women's Day, but it won't go out on International Women's Day because Fuzzy Logic doesn't play on a Wednesday. No. No. But maybe it should. It should happen every day. It should happen every day. You should have science every day, not we just science on a Sunday. Science breakfast show. What do you reckon? Oh, let's do it. Drive yep. time. Yep. Science drive. Science drive. Um, so, yes, Mitchell Mitchell has just shared with us a bit of uh, backstory about Mary Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, one of the human computers featured in the film Hidden Figures. It's pretty cool. Um, and her role in not only being a very highly qualified engineer with NASA, but then also um, helping out other women. Um, and people of colour get promoted and hired in NASA. Yeah, making their workforce more diverse and therefore better at solving problems. Mm-hmm. Because, hey, if everyone's thinking the same way, uh, you're all going to miss the some, same solutions. Some really obvious stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What's what's your first lady today, so my, Eleanor? My first scientist today is Professor Dame Carol Robinson. That's a pr- Professor... Dame Carol Robinson. How do you... Okay, so how do you become a dame... Uh, by uh, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell okay. you when I when yeah. I talk about okay. her. Professor Dame Carol Robinson. 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 Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I actually got to see her speak last month. Oh, that's pretty uh, cool. At the conference that we went to. Um, so she gave a talk. I've, I've seen her speak before, um, and I'll tell you about the context of that uh, later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she has done some really, really cool work. But the thing that I really like about her is that she has a very non-traditional story for a modern scientist. So cool. Okay. So. She was uh, born in 1956 in Kent, yep. uh, and she went to school, did all the school stuff, interested in science, whatever, yep. <laughs> uh, but she left school at 16 Yep. Uh, and then went and took up a technical position in the Pfizer laboratory, so the big pharmaceutical company. And it was while she was working there that people basically noticed that she had this drive and innate interest and talent for what they were looking at, which was mass spectrometry. Cool. So mass spectrometry is a technique that chemists uh, employ mm-hmm. to look at the structure of different molecules. Yep. So if you've listened isn't, before... Isn't there a machine with lots of long, windy tubes? I mean, a lot of the machines have long, windy tubes. I might be thinking of other machines. There's, yeah. I mean, there, there are windy tubes involved. And okay. um, so the science of mass spectrometry is basically if you uh, break up a molecule... Yep. With um, ionizing radiation. So you zap it. Mm-hmm. Um, you basically spray it in in like a little perfume bottle atomizer. Cool. Break it up. Send it accelerating down a big long arm. You you accelerate it using uh, electricity because these particles that are broken up have charges on them. Yep. And then you send it bending around an arm using oh, magnets. Yep. Yeah. So there's a bend. And heavier things or things that are less charged won't go as far around the bend and so we'll hit a detector earlier whereas things that are lighter or are more charged or some combination of the two Hmm. will get further around the bend because 
you imagine a, a light zippy car yeah. um, getting yeah. further around a bend like, than a big heavy like, one. It's like a truck and a motorbike exactly. taking the same corner in the rain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly they, what it is. And they go through the bollards at different points. Yes, and what what these chemists do is that they inspect those bollards. <laughs> and go, hmm, this one punched through and went over the cliff here, and that one went over the cliff there. And from this that... This one must have been going faster. Yeah, or this one is clearly bigger or heavier or yep. um, accepted less charge. And so using this technique, you can basically smash up a molecule into lots of different parts, look at the array of masses you get out the other side, and then reverse engineer how that molecule must have been stuck together initially. That's pretty cool. Because some parts are more likely to break off than others. So yeah, if you've like got, all the bits on the edges. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Edges are going to come off. Yep. Um, probably like your with, wing mirrors. <laughs> yes. To stick with our poor driving in the rain analogy. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of a simplification of the technique. But one of the limitations of mass spec uh, was... So they had to use your actual arm. Is that you, had to, you had to manually throw these molecules. It's <laughs> impossible. No. Sorry. There was a size limitation. So you could, oh. you could send small molecules around pretty readily because small molecules you could um, easily sort of zap. Um, they need less charge to get going. Yeah, so it's basically the idea that you want your molecule to break apart in a particular way. If you're using the traditional methods and you put protein in this machine, um, the protein will decompose in um, messy ways and you'll get incomprehensible results out the other side. And it'll break up different ways, different times? Is that happen? Yeah, there's, there's sort of... Basically, you get a spectra out the, you get spectra out the other side mm-hmm. um, and there's just a lot of noise yeah, because okay. you've got so many different bits. bits of a large molecule. Proteins are big um, and they have made lots of stuff. And so yeah. it's, it's hard to visualize things like... So if, if you wanted to look at a protein, for example, and see whether... Say you, you subject it to some chemical treatment and you want to see if you've successfully added a chemical group to a particular place in your protein. Mm. Well, that's like a handful of atoms against the background of a giant protein. You can't... And you're relying on separating things by mass, but there's so much noise that you, using traditional techniques, you can't Can't, pull that out as easily. Yeah, okay. So at the kind of beginning of mass spec becoming a a technique people use for looking at molecules, Mm -hmm. um, Carl Robinson... uh, Dame, Professor Dame Professor Carol, Dame Carol Robinson um, was working as a as a tech in this lab. Yep. Basically, people must have just said, "Hey, you've really got you've got the right idea." Yep. You've she, got. I like you, kid. You've got spunk. Basically, <laughs> she she said in her talk um, at this conference that the thing she really enjoyed about working in that setting was that she got the chance to take the machine apart. Oh, that's and cool. So she was real big on taking machines apart, actually looking at how the different components work together. Yep. And then building them back, you know, up into sort of new or improved versions of that machine. That's so cool. actually completely dismantling the equipment they were using and making it work better. Nice. Um, and so eventually it was sort of declared that she needed to go and, and study further. And so she took night classes. Uh, yeah, so she got her degree by, by going to evening classes and getting yep. time off work. Yep. Uh, eventually she got to study a master's of science at the University of Swansea. Yep. Um, and then smashed out her PhD at Cambridge in two years. Wow. Um, That's putting you to shame, Eleanor. Oh, boy. How long have you been at yours now? <laughs> Hush. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, had this real in, intense sort of application and, and drive to get through something like that That's so pretty, quickly. That's pretty cool. Um, went and postdoced at Bristol. Um, then she took eight years off to raise a family. <laughs> which, As you do. Like, this is a big deal. Yeah. Because 
for women in science, one of this is the point of attrition, right? So yep. there are pretty much 50-50, but things like biology and chemistry, um, it's almost female-dominated at PhD level. Which is and pretty it's cool. not until you start getting into postdocing and then getting academic positions that you see the leaky pipeline effect where okay. women drop out of the system. Yeah. One of the reasons um, is they families. Have, they have to give up science to raise a family. Exactly. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a genuine problem and it's one that, that hopefully, you know, there'll be fellowships directed at women who are returning to their careers that will help women get back into academia after they've had a family. And and the thing, the argument that always gets thrown around is like, oh, well, you choose to have a family, so you choose to leave your career. And it's like, well, no, yeah, it, dis, it disproportionately affects women because there are so many male academics who have a family. Yep. And it's just that socially it's it's not it's, as expected that they're going to drop everything. To raise a family, exactly. that's it. Yeah. So it's not that you're choosing your family over your career, it's that it disproportionately yeah. affects women's careers over men's to do to make the same choice to yeah. make the choice to have kids yeah so anyway it's it's astounding that she was able to take a career gap and then get back into academia and that's just a testament to how how much visionary, she had. yeah <laughs> how, how visionary her, her science was um yeah. so basically what she did is she started to pioneer this technique where you could start to look at larger molecules she was appointed professor at cambridge mm-hmm. in 2001 uh, and now holds a position at oxford that's pretty cool. uh, and is still her research group still doing incredible things with pioneering this technique of mass spectrometry, which up until you know relatively recently has had this quite large limitation on on the size of molecules you could observe using this technique. She was appointed Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2013. What? So that's why she's Professor Dame, um, and that's just I guess services to. Uh, science like she's pretty cool she's made such a big impact in the way science is done by actually rebuilding machines um (sighs) she's also the only woman to ever give the big departmental lecture at the research school of chemistry at anu that's pretty cool in the 50 years that yeah okay pick up your game anu yeah i'll say uh research school of chemistry we need more women as our birch lecturers yeah uh so she gave the birch lecture a few years ago and it was fantastic did you see it yeah i did awesome it was amazing it's pretty cool (laughs) everyone was very giggly afterwards she's (laughs) is she funny yeah she's she's just wonderful and she's the dame commander of the british empire whatever it is (laughs) exactly big fan that's pretty amazing Who's your second scientist, Mitchell? Okay, so you had a lady that is still alive and doing amazing science to this day. Mm -hmm. My second power lady scientist has been dead for probably about 2,000 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay, we're we're jumping through time. This is good. Jumping through time. Deep, deep, deep time. Good. Uh, Yeah, so so the (sighs) she's most commonly referred to as Mary the Jewess. Okay, I don't think we can say that anymore. I don't don't like saying that. No. Um, she, I don't think that's in vogue. Yeah, luckily she also has a few other names or titles that she's referred to as. Yeah. Um, Maria Habre Maria Habreia. Yeah. I think is how you say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maria the Sage mm-hmm. or the Maria the Prophetess. Okay, I like the Prophetess. The Prophetess is pretty good. Yeah, isn't let's it? let's go with that one. Yeah, Maria the Prophetess. Uh, she was the first Western alchemist. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Right. That's mm-hmm. pretty awesome. Um, alchemy being like before chemistry yeah it's like proto chemistry it's it's alchemy is to chemistry what astrology is to astronomy how about that yeah i can 
I can see the yeah. I can see the connection there. It's all kooky and weird. Yeah, but it's but like, it sort of bred a, a subject yeah. area that there became scientifically grounded. Yeah, but Mary the Prophetess, we don't actually know when she lived. Okay, because we don't ever have any of her writings. We only have what other people have written and referred to her from. Okay. The first source that we have, the first known source that we have, comes from the 4th century alchemist Zosimos of Panopolis. Cool. Right? Yeah. Uh, who called her the sister of Moses. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think she's the sister of the Moses. Uh, yeah. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. I don't know if the dates line up there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they almost definitely don't. <laughs> um... <laughs> Unless she was very, very old by the time she was doing alchemy. Um, yeah, he mentioned her in his text, Peri Kaminon Kai Organon, right. which translate to On Furnaces and Apparatuses. Okay, that makes more sense. Which may itself be based on a text from Mary. Okay. Uh, which is pretty cool. But she probably lived at some point in the first century, but she could have lived as late as the third. Mm-hmm. She invented a couple of, she's known to have invented a couple of alchemical apparatuses, mm-hmm. one of which is the Caroticus. Caroticus. And the Tribocus. Do we know what they look like? Yeah, so one of them is basically, the, I think it's the Caroticus is like a prototype hermetically sealed instrument. Okay. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. And I think the Tribocus is, you know, is is a beaker-like thing that's got three spouts coming out of it. Oh, okay. Uh, so she was developing glass, basically glassware. That yeah. Would... So one of them was made out of bronze, I think, mm. uh, and had metal tubey bits sticking out of it. Yep. That sounds, that sounds like what alchemists would use. The coolest invention, though, that she, she is known to have invented... Mm. Uh, it's one that we still use to this day. Ooh. And it still bears her name. Okay. It's Mary's Bath. Mary's Bath. More commonly referred to as the Bain-Marie. <laughs> Seriously? It's fair income. That's so First weird. First century alchemist invented the Bain-Marie and we still call it a Bain-Marie after Mary. Explain to, to any of our non-culinary culinarily initiated listeners, yeah. what's a Bain-Marie? So whenever you need to melt chocolate for cooking, you use a Bain-Marie. Well, if you're doing it properly. If you're doing it properly, yeah. yeah. You don't just stick if, it in the microwave. If you don't stick it in the microwave. So it's about... It's if, about... if you got you get a pot of water, mm. you boil the water, mm. you put a bowl with whatever you want to melt slowly at an even temperature in the water. Mm. And so that the water... Uh, heat temp- capacity. Heat capacity, that's right. Water has a very good heat capacity. Yeah. And so if Instead you... Instead of putting it straight over the fire... On a metal pot. On a metal pot. Which will conduct Which is going it. to conduct... It's gonna, not going to heat the stuff as evenly. Yeah. The Whereas brain. if you submerge it in something that's, an, that's a constant temperature... Yep. Um, it, it acts as a buffer and allows it to heat more evenly. Yeah. Mary the prophetess. Yeah. Um, first century, potentially... Um, yeah. And we still use some of her apparatus. That's pretty cool. Uh, the even first though... Western alchemist. Yeah. Mary the Prophetess. But there were plenty of alchemists before her in the Middle East, I think. Apparently, yeah. yeah. I honestly didn't look up to see who the earliest alchemist was uh, when I was prepping this today. So maybe Because they that's... probably weren't called Mary. And probably that, weren't that was called your Mary. Criteria. That was my criteria. I needed more Marys. You did. Yeah. <laughs> need more Marys I, need, I, Mary I, I literally found the first w- woman scientist called Mary. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, no, but alchemy, like a lot of the the sciences, were born in in the Middle East, essentially. Yeah. Um. So we'll do we'll do a special episode on that. We should. Um. I yeah, in the near future, mm. definitely, because I want to sort of look into the birth of those sorts of sciences. Um. Well, let's go to another track. 
Cool. Uh, this is Hold On by Alabama Shakes, and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. That was Hold On by Alabama Shakes. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. Uh, it's your science on a Sunday, and you're in the studio with me, Eleanor, and Mitchell. And, and I'm Mitchell. Hello. Mitchell is not waving this time. I'm not waving this he time. My hands lesson. are down. Yes. I learned my lesson. You can't see me wave. Yep. It's International Women's Day when we're recording this, uh, so we're doing a special edition uh, looking at power lady scientists. As power we, lady scientists. Just We're just looking at some awesome scientists who, mm-hmm. who happen to be women and some of the systemic barriers that they had to overcome to get where they did. Mm-hmm. Mitchell has selected three Marys. Yep, because um, there are heaps of lady scientists so much that you haven't heard of. Yeah. So much so that I could pick all women named Mary. Exactly. So next time you're complaining that you couldn't find enough women to make your conference uh, 50-50, yep. remember that Mitchell can... <laughs> I can hook you up with some Marys. <laughs> Yeah, proving a point that that you can even uh, enforce a very strict criteria on your search for interesting and influential women in science, Mm -hmm. uh, and you'll still be able to find plenty. So it's on to my second uh, power lady scientist, and I have picked someone who has one of the coolest names I've ever heard. Yeah. uh, Annie Jump Cannon. You always pick ladies with such awesome names. I've definitely heard the name Annie Jump Cannon. We were talking earlier about human computers. Yep. And you brought up the fact that one of the reasons there were so many women as human computers yep. uh, was because they could be paid less yep. and because a lot of the computation that was starting to be done was being done in World War II yep. uh, and there weren't any men around because they were all fighting. Uh, and so women took on the burden of doing the maths behind the wall. And there's probably like a lot of the human computing that had to be done had to be done for engineers and all the men were en- all the engineers were men. That might have had something to do with it as well. Maybe that's just me spouting stuff off the top well, of my head. Maybe one of the one of the aspects of um, Annie Jump Cannon's story, which I'll use to lead into her her personal life, um, is something called the harem effect. Oh, this sounds grotty. Yeah, it's a little. It's a little bit. Um, it's a phenomenon in which male scientists who are in supervisory positions, and this is turn of the century sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, would predominantly hire women as assistants or subordinates, basically. Yeah, okay. Um, The reasons for this, as you say, were that they could be paid a heap less, Mm. um, but there was also uh, the slightly more grotty uh, reason, which was that uh, I have a quote, in fact, um, from a, a science, an article published in Science about historically, like about women in science in history, mm. um, and the quote was uh, basically the idea that if you hire an all-woman team, and I quote, reduced competition from a bevy of female subordinates, competent but less threatening than an equal number of bright young men. Of course. So. Yep. Some of these scientists were basically feeling that if they, they were mentoring the, young men, then they, they would lose their jobs because yeah. the bright, up-and-coming young men would, would sort of scoop their work and go yeah. off and start their own groups. Their masculinity would be threatened. Yeah, there was an yeah. element of that. Um, so, God, yeah, God that's, damn. that's the... That's that's an aspect of the harem effect. But as, as we'll see, there's always nuance in these situations and there yep. are definitely some definite benefits of, you know, for women that this was in place, not the fact they got paid a lot less, but the fact that they actually got to do mm. science they in some in, capacity. They got in in the first place, yeah. So that's where Pickering's harem comes in. Yeah, okay. Edward Charles Pickering um, was the director of the Harvard Observatory. Yep. Um, so he was an astronomer. Yep. Um, and he was the director from 1877 to 1919. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, 
what was, um, you know, Ickley described as Pickering's harem, um, but has sort of been um, tidied up a bit in, in modern terms and called the Harvard Computers. Okay, so, that sounds much nicer. Yes, exactly. Um, and these were the group of women that worked for um, Pickering and basically analysed all his astronomical data. Yep. Although a lot of his staff were astronomy graduates, their wages were similar to those of unskilled workers. Yep. Uh, so they usually earned between 25 and 50 cents per hour. Oh, my God. Which was more than a factory worker, but less than a clerical worker. Yeah, okay. And so what his um, Harvard computers were doing was um, at night, the, the men scientists would get their telescopes and they would collect um, images of stars. They would collect the spectral data. Yep. And then during the day, his um, Harvard computers, these women would go through and sort through the data and classify stars. Yeah, basically. Cool. So Annie Jump Cannon was one of these women. So she was born in 1863 in Delaware. Her mother was called Mary Jump, another Mary. That's, yeah. Um, and she sort of started teaching um, Annie about constellations from a very young age. Yep. Um, encouraged her to follow her scientific interests, suggested that she study maths and chemistry and biology, uh, which Annie then went on to do. Um, this is where it gets a bit sad. She suffered... They. There's conflicting reports, but the sort of consensus at the moment is that she got scarlet fever and it left her with permanent hearing damage. And so she was, um, I'm not sure to what degree, but to a degree that people claim that it affected her social life to such a degree that she basically immersed herself entirely in her studies and work to avoid being... Having to go outside and Yeah, and be disabled in public in 18... 90 or whatever 18 sucks yeah. yeah so that's one of the things that she had to overcome in addition to being a, a qualified woman who was being used to sift through data yeah um so she studied astronomy and physics at wellesley college and she studied under sarah Frances whiting who was one of the only women in astronomy at the time like so this is still like the late 19th century Mm. and so sarah francis whiting is already acting as this mentor and bringing other women into the discipline as early as that that's pretty cool which is really cool annie jump cannon got her degree in physics in 1884 and then she got a job under whiting uh, as a physics teacher cool um, which sort of allowed her to start taking graduate courses in physics and astronomy um, which kind of led to her being able to get a foot in the door at harvard Uh, and start using their telescopes, which is what she always wanted to do. She met uh, Edward Charles Pickering at Harvard while he was the director and became one of his computers. Edwin Charles Pickering wanted to collect uh, optical spectra of as many stars as possible. So any stars that they could find in the sky, he wanted to know what they were made out of, of, um, how how bright they were, how big they were, what they were doing up there. Uh, (laughs) we're minding our own business buzz off pickering stop Um, pointing that telescope at us and so he and he also wanted to find a consistent and effective way of cataloging the stars so obviously Mm -hmm. you're taking images of hundreds of thousands of stars Mm. um and he wanted a system that would there's no filing cabinets big enough well essentially yeah um there's no system there's no dewey decimal system of star Stars. classification oh, oh boy and that's what a star um, library that's what Annie jump cannon came up with so she came up oh, with cool. a method of classifying the stars based on the absorption lines in the spectra yep. so when you 
point a particular type of telescope at a star, you can um, observe the wavelengths of light that are coming out of that star. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I think the way that I understand this is, you know, where you get your prisms and you hold them up to white light and you get see your rainbow? Yeah. You get like black lines or something in your prism depending on what elements are in that star. Yeah. Yeah. Absorbing what? Yeah. Or emitting what? Yeah. So different elements absorb and emit light at different wavelengths yep. um, based on the energies of the electrons whizzing around those elements or those nuclei. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a good way of looking at something that's very, very far away because the light can reach us uh, and we can analyze the content of that light to determine what the makeup of that star is. The classification system that they use today, have you heard of stars being classified as O, B, A, F, G, K or M? Uh, the Trappist one was an F one, wasn't it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. I think I do. I think I have heard those words before. Maybe just because of the recent Trappist yeah. star that's got all the cool planets on it that are Earth-like. Well, yeah. our sun is a G type star. Uh, Annie Jump Cannon came up with this classification system based on the absorbance of those spectral lines. Cool. So that system's shifted a little bit since she came up with it. So now, rather than it being based on the intensity of the absorbance, it's now based on the temperature of the star. The surface okay. temperature, which they can um, cl- they can determine it from the spectra, but it's now we're not looking at the spectra as the property that defines it. We're looking at the temperature of the star that defines it. Okay. So your O stars are very very hot, yep. um, like thirty thousand de- degrees hot. That's a lot of hot. Um, whereas your M stars, which are the coolest. Uh, they're only oh, like yeah. 3,000 degrees hot. Those cool underachieving M stars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Annie Jump Cannon came up with a little uh, mnemonic for remembering the classification of stars. I'm definitely going to need to hear this. It is, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. <laughs> okay. You can replace girl with guy if But that's if not that's nearly as boat. fun. Yeah, so her subdivisions and her classification is still used. It's just that now it's shifted to reflect the temperature of the star rather than the absorbance lines. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and she classified um, over 300,000 stars in her lifetime. That's pretty cool. Which is... How, wait, how many stars? 350,000. I don't think I've seen that many stars. You might have done. Maybe. She uh, basically then went on to become sort of an ambassador for women in these professions. So she wrote books and articles to increase astronomy's status. Cool. In 1933, she represented professional women at the World's Fair oh, uh, in awesome. Chicago. Yeah, uh, man, that World's Fair is really cool. Maybe we should talk about that sometime. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently she could classify three stars a minute just by looking at their spectral patterns. Whoa. So, you know, she has a pretty speedy human computer. Um, and a very accomplished person. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So, um, oh, man. who's your who's your third Mary? I have another Mary. My third and final Mary. Yep. Is the Mary that I wanted to talk about the most. Okay. Uh, and it's a Mary that I didn't. It's a, it's a it's a Mary that I've never met. Okay. But it's the Mary that I've been closest to meeting. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, there are less degrees of separation between me and this Mary than anybody else that I've talked about. How about that? Excellent. That's a good way of saying it. Um, but yeah, no, the last Mary that I'm going to talk about is Dr. Mary Wade. Yeah, Mary Julia Wade was born in South Australia. Um, oh, Australian, awesome. Yeah, she's an Australian. She grew up with her parents, Chris and Nora, and her brother Bill on a grazing property in northeast west in northeast South Australia. Cool. Um, she had, you know, your typical rural girl life. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she was seven, her family moved to Thistle Island in the Spencer Gulf, where she first developed an interest in geology. 
Um, she studied for a Bachelor of Science in Geology at the Adelaide University before undertaking postgraduate studies. Cool. She undertook research into tertiary-aged microfossils. So tertiary is like here, uh, after the dinosaurs. Okay. Yep. Sure. She embarked on work on the earliest forms of animal life, work which was to occupy the next 10 years. Wow. So this is the Ediacaran fauna. Okay. So the Ediacaran is named after the town in South Australia of mm. Ediacara. Mm-hmm. And so you've got uh, the the oldest fossils, mm-hmm. right? The oldest fossils come from the Cambrian. Yeah. And this is the way it was for a very long time. Mm. So the Cambrian is when you get the first fossils of animals with hard parts. Yeah. With shells and skeletons and beaky bits and eyes. Yeah. Right? You get your first trilobites. You get your first... Um, uh, animals that are the descendants of chordates, which are where chordates, first things with backbones and yep. stuff. Spinal cord. Yep. That's it. You get your first arthropods. You get your first mollusks. Sure. And there's no fossils ever from before the Cambrian. Right. Until, None. until some kid finds some fossils from before the Cambrian. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, out in Edi- Science out, is disrupted. Out in Ediacara. Perfect. And so Mary Wade spent the start of her career studying these Ediacaran fossils. Cool. Which are really cool. Most of them, we still don't know what they are. Sure. Which is really cool. They're all weird, squishy jellyfish thing. Um, during that time, she made a major contribution to the knowledge of these strange fossil jellyfish and other problematic remains. Like, a lot of the things you talk about the... Uh, this fauna or that fauna. Mm. Uh, the Ediacaran is referred to as the Ediacaran biota. Right. Because half, of before... it, because half of it we don't know whether or not it's a plant or an animal. Wow. Or a fungus. That's so cool. It's, they're just really weird. Yeah. I didn't even know these existed. They're pretty crazy. A lot of them, some of them look like sea pens, but they might not be sea pens. Mm. So some of them just like look like just lozenges in the rocks or pancakes and weird stuff. There's there's one thing called Sprigginia, which mm. looks like it might be a worm or an early arthropod. Right. Or an early chordate. Right. Or it might be like a thing that sticks up with what we think is its head in the sand and it waves around collecting stuff out of the water. We just, it's like what, uh, uh, not sure. So it's proper it's a, it's, alien. This is a thing. Yeah. This is definitely a thing and we can identify these things. But the nature of the things. What they are, though? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's well, it's a thing. Mm. So Mary Wade was looking what, at these. Looking at these. Uh, she was also appointed a temporary lecturer, but she had no prospect of, permanent, of a permanent acad- academic position. So she decided to leave in January of 1971. In March of that same year, yeah. she moved to Brisbane to become the curator of geology at the Queensland Museum. Awesome. Yeah. So it's like, uh, mm, there's not really any jobs going here. I might just quit. I'll quit. Oh, will come up. Two months later, oh, yeah, I'll become the curator of geology at the Queensland Museum. I know so Museum. many people who have done things like that, and it's yeah. just infuriating. It's pretty... It's, it's great. It's pretty cool. But it's just like, I want a, I want a job. I want a job. <laughs> um, yeah, and during the next few years, she ex- explored areas of Western Queensland, studying the remains, fossil remains of early nautiloid mollusks, so squiddy things and shells. Mm. This led her to, to describe a completely new group of fossil mollusks. She rapidly developed an affinity for the Queensland outback and she established many local contacts and through their assistant collected new dinosaur remains in the Winton district. Oh, Winton. Winton. That's where the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum is. Yeah, that's I used to work there. 
Did you really? I did. I had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> I worked there in 2014. That's so cool. Um, yeah, and in 1976 and 1977, she and Dr. Tony Tholborn organised and supervised the excavation of more than 3,300 footprints in the Tully Range southwest of Winton. Wow. This site, now known as Lark Quarry, is still the best-known set of dinosaur footprints in the world. It is not just a dinosaur stampede. Mm. It is not... Australia's dinosaur stampede. It is the dinosaur stampede. It's it's world class dinosaur it is, stampede. It is the only known fossil dinosaur stampede in the world. That's amazing. And the paper that uh, Mary Wade and Tony Tholborn wrote on that trackway was the most comprehensive and the largest academic paper on dinosaur footprints ever written. Wow. Well, at the time, I don't know if it still holds that title. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's now a major tourist attraction and it's on the natural heritage, National Heritage List. Cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and in, in 1987, with the help of local people in the Huendon area, she recovered the second only skull of the Queens, Queensland's iconic dinosaur, Mutabarosaurus. Oh, Mutabarosaurus. Mutabarosaurus, like the only Australian dinosaur that you've got a chance of anybody ever having heard of yeah. before. It's the only one I'd heard of. That's it. In 1990, she excavated in the Huendon area the most complete pliosaur known to date. It's known as the Richmond Pliosaur. It's on display in the Queensland Museum if you're ever there. Uh, I actually got to visit the site where Mary Wade dug up that skeleton wow, when I was really? visiting out there in Winton. It was really, really cool. That's amazing. Um, and it was really cool, like, going to that site where they dug up the Richmond Pliosaur yeah. and you're looking at the picture and then you take the picture down and it's the same hole in the ground. <laughs> yeah. And then we were, like, talking about it and kicking around rocks and we picked up another piece of bone from that pliosaur. It's like, oh, this is one of those little flipper bones that we're missing. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> we found a and, flipper. And um, Stumpcat, I can't remember his actual name, I just remember his surname, which was Stumpcat, just puts <laughs> it in his top pocket of his shirt and, like, <laughs> we're ready to go back. That's awesome. It was pretty cool. Oh, wow. So um, close to, to such an amazing scientist. Right? Yeah, Dr. Wade retired from the museum in 1993, but in her time there... She quadrupled the fossil collections of of um the muse of the Queensland Museum. Wow, which is incredible. Uh, her research had many broad and direct implications for the development of Chronosaurus Corner in Richmond, Flinders Discovery Centre in Hewenden, Lark Quarry, and the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum in Winton. Whether it's the straight and coiled nautiloids from the far western. Uh, far northwest of the state or the great giant dinosaurs and plesiosaurs of the central center west geologist and paleontologist mary wade was at the hub of bringing them back bringing them back to life well we are talking about incredible influential scientists here on fuzzy logic today we're going to go to another track uh what are we going to listen to this time let's listen to oh, up above my head by sister rosetta tharp uh, i have a story about her after after the track okay. so enjoy <laughs> That was Sister Rosetta Tharp with Up Above My Head. Uh, kind of an old-sounding recording there. That's because Sister Rosetta Tharp uh, is the godmother of rock and roll. So that That's track cool. that we just heard, uh, very very sort of traditional soul and rock and roll kind of sound to it. Like, people like Elvis were inspired by her. That's like, pretty cool. This whole, this whole fiction of Elvis or the Beatles inventing rock and roll is it's, a lie. It it's was dumb. Sister Rosetta Tharp taking her soul music and her incredible guitar playing and singing around America. Excellent. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Godmother yeah. of rock and roll. Yeah. 
Uh, so you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. Who's your last lady? She's got a double-barreled colour name. Yeah. Uh, her name's Olive Pink, uh, and she's an Australian. Yep. She was born in Hobart in 1884, cool. and she seems like she was quite a firecracker of a person. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so this is, this is one of the anecdotes I've been looking forward to telling. So she was essentially a botanical illustrator and artist. Cool. Um, she is really important because plants are, can be really tricky to identify. Exactly. Yeah. And so people who have the artistic skill to go look for interesting plants... Um, reproduce them accurately in an era before we could just take photos readily. And botanical illustration is also really important, even in the era of photography, because sometimes you can be looking at a photo and not know what you're looking at, whereas botanical illustrations highlight all the important points that you need to be able to, need to be looking at to identify these things properly. Well, there you go. So mm. she was she was a, a botanical illustrator um, and an anthropologist, and also uh, an activist for Aboriginal rights. That's pretty cool. Uh, so she went to school at Hobart, Hobart Girls High School. Um, and then attended the Sydney Art School, which was very prestigious, uh, and uh, honed her skills as an illustrator. She kind of lived a relatively sort of sheltered life up to that point and then started to go on holiday with um, a pretty renowned um, human rights activist called Daisy Bates. Cool. I think um, I've heard that name before. Uh, so she that's where she first encountered Aboriginal culture, essentially, because they okay. went on holiday. It's a very sort of... Uh, 18, 1880s sort of white women going on holiday to the Nullarbor Plain kind of vibe. Yeah, and okay. that is a bit problematic. But yeah. but basically what happened is that she fell in love with this culture, um, became fascinated by desert flora as well as that's her cool. interest in, in sort of um, botany. There's some pretty cool desert flowers. Um, and that's what really captured. So she went back to Sydney to study anthropology um, and became secretary to the Anthropological Society of New South Wales. Cool. This allowed her to get a grant from the Australian Research Council yep. to go back and study the culture of these Aboriginal groups um, living in Central Australia. So she worked among the Aranda people, um, which is sort of a, a group of Aboriginal people near Alice Springs. Yep. And she also worked with the Walpiri people um, of the Tanami Desert. Yeah, I've definitely heard of them before. Yeah, so... She. This is where she starts getting in trouble. She gets in trouble a lot. Here we go. Somebody um, set her on fire because she's a firecracker. <laughs> oh. So she published some papers on the Aranda people because yep. they were open to her um, disseminating sort of aspects of their culture and, and studying that. But even though she worked closely with the Walpiri people, um, there were certain um, rituals and cultural sensitivities that meant that she didn't feel it was ethical to publish her research on those cultures. Okay. And so she didn't. She withheld that research. Good on her. And that destroyed her career as an anthropologist. Because she wouldn't publish this stuff. Exactly. Wow. Um, so in her attempt to, you know, be a decent person and be um, sensitive to the, the cultural requirements of these Aboriginal people living in this particular region, yeah. um, she was basically told, no, 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 you can't be an anthropologist anymore. Wow. So that was sort of where she had to start leaning more into her botany. Yep. So she went through a whole big series of exploits trying to raise funds to start botanical gardens near yep. Alice Springs. Um, she met and became very good friends with um, Albert Namatjira. Cool. who was a very, very famous Aboriginal artist, uh, had, a, had a lot of his art, and she built her own museum. Um, this is cool. where she starts to get a little bit sort of off the rails. She starts <laughs> living this sort of life um, in, in tin sheds and tents in the desert to better study her flowers. 
um, and she builds her own museum where she displays her botanical drawings and some of um, the Aboriginal artwork from the region. Cool. Um, and she charges people to enter the museum, but she lets her friends in for free. <laughs> but she she refuses entry to, and I quote, time wasters. <laughs> <laughs> so, Excellent. So Good job. You just, I don't know how you time waste. You waste someone else's time in a museum. I feel like you waste your own time in a museum if you're wandering around not really looking at stuff yeah. but but anyway so wow. she was yep good she job was sort of this guardian of her museum yeah um she ended up getting herself on she uh, isn't having any of it yep. <laughs> she got herself on an azio watch list um <laughs> oh, man. as a communist sympathizer wow because she basically started annoying the heck out of politicians and newspapers um mailing them constantly about Aboriginal rights. Awesome. Um, she Good on her. was basically denounced as a pest because she wouldn't leave these politicians alone. She was constantly Good. harassing them. Good on her. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. She you got wanted in, to stop bothering you. Do some do something politicianing. Good. Yeah. Um, so she got in trouble for badgering politicians about mm. the um, and, and trying to raise awareness of the um, issues that were facing Aboriginal communities. Um, okay. So by this stage, her anthropological career has been, you know, down the decimated. Yeah. Um, she was working at a courthouse and she would go in um, to any trials where the defendant was an Aboriginal person okay. and um, basically cause trouble, um, <laughs> try, like defending them and, defending and then, them, and then yeah. publicizing what happened in the court and, yeah. and going out and spreading the word of how justice was perhaps being abused, the yeah. justice system was being abused to um, further oppress an already oppressed group of people. Yeah. Um, so she got fired from the courthouse and ended up having to live in this shed um, selling fruit to, wow. to make a living. Wow. Um, so she started a botanical garden um, yep. in Alice Springs called the Australian Arid Regions Flora Reserve. So does that, is that does that is that still around? It's still around, but it's got a different name now. Um, What's it called now? It's called the Olive Pink Botanic Garden. Yeah, so it was named it after her death. It was named. It was renamed for her. Cool. But this is the anecdote that I've been dying to tell for you the, know, the previous episode. Hour. Yep. So. She started this botanical gardens with the assistance of the Minister for Territories at the time, so yep. Paul Hasluck. And in her obituary, <laughs> Paul Hasluck tells this story. At the Arid Zone Reserve, Miss Pink planted trees and watered them and tended them. Each tree bore the name of some prominent citizen, and if that citizen fell out of favour with her, she ceased to water it. So if the leaves of Mr Archer were drooping and the leaves of Mr Marsh, March were bright and green, or Mr Barclay was growing vigorously, one knew what had happened in the handling of her latest request. <laughs> I visited her on several occasions and could never restrain a curious glance at my tree and felt suitably gratified if I saw that Mr Hasluck had been watered regularly. Excellent. So she named her trees after people in the, in the community. And stopped watering them <laughs> if they were annoying. Yes. That's so good. Which is just all kinds of bizarre and wonderful. Oh, man. Um, so that's Olive Pink, um, who was... She sounds like a cool, weird lady. Basically, a cool, weird lady who had a promising career as an anthropologist that she abandoned because of her scientific ethics, basically. Yeah. Wow. Um, which is Which is really cool. That's a really cool... She just sounds like... Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that's that's Fuzzy Logic for today. We're out of time. Um, We're so out of time. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for tuning in. This will be podcasted. Uh, so please have a listen or, or tell your friends if, if they're interested in hearing about some cool 
scientist. Thanks once again for listening. Thanks to 2XX. And thank you to Mitchell for coming along. You're welcome. And we'll have more science next Sunday for you Mm. here on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bye.